Well, today, uh, for those of you that may be new here today, we do teach verse by verse through the scriptures. Bob DeWay has been currently going through 1 Corinthians. I'm going through the book of Matthew. Today, we're going to be limiting ourselves to the call of the apostles here. And I want to begin by kind of giving a thought out there that perhaps one of the most important issues that every human being really wrestles with in this life is the question, who speaks for God? Today, we're going to learn that the authority to speak for God was given to Christ's apostles, that they give us the very words of Christ. And so today, we're going to be learning that the apostles of Jesus Christ are sent into the world as his personal spokesman so that if you receive the apostles, you're receiving Christ himself. But if you'll reject the message of the apostles that we have in the scriptures, you're going to be rejecting the Lord Jesus himself. Very important doctrine. Now, I know we've hit this a time or two, but it's good review, and we always have new people. So let's hit this again. Very important. Let's hit it beginning in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. We're going to see here Jesus giving his apostles his authority as he commissions them. Let me pull up my pointer. I've got to be ready here. Notice what it says. It says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the name of the 12 apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now, the rest of the eight will be on the next slide. So let's stop here for just a moment. Notice, first of all, that Jesus summoned, literally, it's proskoleo. He called to himself his 12 disciples. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the wider New Testament, the term disciple there has to do with a believer in Jesus Christ who wants to follow their master in doctrine and deed. And I say that because there are some today in the post-millennial movement who will claim that a true disciple is one who certainly follows Christ, but they'll widen it to say that discipleship also incorporates taking over various institutions, whether they're in our culture or whether they're political. Bob DeWay is going to be writing an article on that very thing. But what we're showing is that in the book of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament, the Mathetes, the disciple, is a believer in Jesus Christ who follows their master in doctrine and deed. That's what a disciple is. It's not taking over a political institution or using the nations to bring about the will of God. It's preaching the gospel. God does the conversion and people are added to being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one thing I want to mention here regarding the 12 disciples, I want you to think of various concentric circles of people that would have been around Jesus. Think about the first concentric circle around Jesus would have been the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And I say that because Jesus probably spent more time with those three than he did any other person on the planet during his three-year ministry. Remember, it was Peter, James, and John that would have been with Christ up on the Mount of Transfiguration, according to Matthew chapter 17. Then outside of that circle would have been the 12. Okay, and of course, Judas was a false disciple. He was never a true convert. Then outside of the 12, there would have been the wider 70 that Jesus also sent out into the world, according to Luke chapter 10. And then outside of the 70 disciples, there would have been the crowds or the masses that would have been made up primarily of unbelievers, although there may have been a believer here and there mixed in. Those are the circles that ran around Christ. But 12 is ex exceedingly important because those are the men that Jesus commissioned to bear his very authority. And it's the 12 then that Jesus calls to himself in some sense to replicate and to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, there may be an echo here from Numbers chapter 1, verse 4, where God had summoned the 12 tribes of Israel to take a census. But here, what I want you to realize is Jesus calls these 12. He is not replacing the, the church or replacing Israel with the church, but rather he is going to create a new humanity that will fill the kingdom that's coming to Israel. So let me say this again. This is not a replacement of Israel as a nation, but a filling of its future kingdom with citizens that will be added to the church. Why do I say that? Well, because in Acts 1-6, the disciples themselves, 
instructed by Christ for 40 days about the coming kingdom, they said, Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So now, people who are added to the church, belonging to the message, who believe the 12 disciples, are going to be those who populate the kingdom that's coming to Israel. So again, the 12 isn't replacing Israel. It's going to be building the kingdom that's coming to Israel. Notice here, Jesus gave them authority. The authority that Jesus gives here means that these disciples will do the very works that Christ did. The very works, why? To show that they are indeed his authoritative spokesman. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 9.35. Matthew 9.35, please turn your Bibles there. I want to show you a connection that we should see, I think, in this text. Notice here in Matthew 10, it says that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Well, one, ch one chapter earlier, we looked at this last week in Matthew 9.35, Jesus did the same thing. Notice it says Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Does everyone see that that is identical to what the disciples will now do based on the authority that he has given them? Why? Because the disciples, the 12, are endowed with the authority of Christ. They will do these miraculous deeds to authenticate they are indeed Jesus Christ's personal spokesman. All right? Now, I want you to see also here as we come into verse 2 that in blue, now the disciples are called the 12 apostles. This is the first time the term apostle is used in our New Testament. The term apostle comes from apostolos, which means a sent one. And what I'm going to show you is that as it's used for these 12, the sent one has the authority of the one who sends them. And I'll show you a connection to the Old Testament concept of the shaluak, the one who is sent having the authority of the one who sent him. So if you reject the one who sent, you're rejecting the sender. That's what we're going to find out in our applications. All right. Now, let's begin talking about some of the names that he lists here. Notice the first one is Simon. Simon, who is also called Peter. Now, Simon Peter, of course, was the spokesman for the Twelve. His name, Petros, Peter, in Greek, simply means the rock. We're going to find that out when we come to Matthew 16 at that confession at Caesarea Philippi. Now, sometimes you'll see him called Cephas. Cephas is the same meaning in Aramaic. It means the rock. So he's Simon Peter. Remember, he was the leader, really the spokesman for the Twelve. And he, according to 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he ministered in Asia, Pontus, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia. And tradition maintains that he also went to Rome, and it's in Rome that he was crucified upside down so as not to be confused with his Lord and Savior. That's the kind of death that Peter died, a martyr's death. Now, notice here, Andrew is his brother. Andrew's name in, in Greek means manliness. He also was a fifth fisherman with Peter from Bethsaida. And it was Andrew who was one of the first disciples who left John the Baptist in order to follow Jesus Christ. He was the one who was following John the Baptist, and then he left to follow Jesus. So again, Peter and Andrew were brothers. And by the way, next time we're together in Matthew, our studies, you'll see these 12 are going to be sent out in pairs. And I don't know if they were paired up as brothers. That may be something that leads to disaster. I don't know. The familial relationships or not, but that's probably what happened. They were sent out as brothers. Notice also we have added to those two more brothers, James, the son of Zebedee. Now, who was Zebedee? Well, he was a fisherman located in Galilee. James here, his name was actually Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name, according to Genesis 25, 26, literally means heel grabber. The original Jacob that we think of who is renamed Israel, the one who struggles with God, was the one who tried to grab the heel of his brother Esau. But this is his real name. James was known as Jacob. And he was actually martyred. He was murdered by Herod Agrippa by the year 44 AD. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Now, notice here, we have another brother. This is the brother of James. That's John. And John's name means the Lord is gracious. And of course, John is the apostle that pens the 
Gospel of John, but he also pens 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He writes the book of Revelation in 95 AD as he has been relegated to Patmos during the reign of Domitian. Now, John is a little bit unique in the sense that he is the only one of the disciples that is of the 12 that ends up living a long life. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, of course, kills himself. He commits suicide. But the rest of these men were more than likely martyred at much younger ages. But John lived into his 90s. Now, let's keep going on in this list of the 12 apostles. Notice it continues. It says, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, I want to start with Philip. Philip's name in Greek means horse lover. Philip, of course, if you read Acts chapter 6 through 8, he was the one who brought the gospel to the Samaritans. And interestingly, if you read Acts chapter 8, he was the first person to ever be raptured, as it were, I guess you might say Enoch was, or perhaps, I guess, even Elijah. But in the New Testament, remember, Philip was raptured from one location to another after he had baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And ironically, it happened right along the location that we have warfare today. It would have been right along the Gaza Strip. That's Philip. So he brought the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, Bar- Bartholomew here, his name in Hebrew means son of Talmai. And he's probably also known as Nathaniel. The Nathaniel that you read about that's connected with Philip in John 145 through 49, that's probably who this Bartholomew was. He also was from Cana, according to John 21.2. Next, we come to Thomas. Remember, Thomas's other name was Didymus. In Hebrew, that means twin. But of course, all of us know him as Doubting Thomas. He was the one who said that he would not believe in the resurrected Christ unless he personally saw him and felt him. And lo and behold, Jesus Christ was gracious. He gave them that very opportunity. And remember, after Thomas felt Jesus' resurrected body, he said what? My Lord and my God. He confessed him. That's who Thomas was. Now, tradition maintains that Thomas was the one who brought the gospel to India. Some sources say that he went to Persia, but I think the best case is he did go to India, where he indeed was martyred as well. Next, we come to Matthew. Matthew's gospel, of course, is the one we're studying verse by verse right now. His other name, remember, was Levi. Now, remember I mentioned earlier that Matthew's name means literally gift of God. And I mentioned because he was seen as a collaborator, as a tax gatherer, a lot of the other disciples probably didn't consider him a gift from God. But they all, through the God's grace, came together as the 12. Notice he was a tax collector. Now, after that, you have James, another James called the son of Alphaeus. He also, in Mark 15:40, is called homikros. In Greek, that means the little one or the small one. And more than likely, what that meant is that James just either didn't have the physical stature that James, the brother of John, did, or perhaps he was younger. But that's the way they distinguished the two James. Uh, notice here we also have Thaddeus. Thaddeus, in some texts, is called Labaius. That's in some textual variants. I think Thaddeus is probably original, but uh, he, there's not much known about him other than him simply being mentioned in a few texts. Now, the next one we come to is Simon the Zealot. Now, Simon the Zealot is a little bit of a debated one because here we don't know if he's a zealot because he's zealous for Judaism, as it were, a religious zealousy, or was he a zealot in the political sense, as many of the zealots were around the time that Matthew wrote his gospel? You see, during the actual lifespan of the apostles, the true zealot political movement wasn't in full swing. But yet, that could have been something Matthew was referring to because when he wrote the gospel, there was a political movement known as zealots who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Now, notice here Judas Iscariot. Iscariot here probably means, notice the is, that comes from ish for man in Hebrew, and then karyoth. He's the man from karyoth. Remember, he was the one who was the treasurer for the twelve. And the reason I mention that his name literally means Judas, the man from Kerioth, is that was a town in southern Judah. So not only does he have the distinction of being the one who 
held on to the checkbook, as it were, for the disciples. But he was the only non-Galilean. And yet he was the one who betrayed Jesus Christ and ended up hanging himself. Dear ones, it's these 12 that Jesus ends up giving his authority to. And later in our studies, when we come to verses 5 through 8, there's so much in that I couldn't pack that all in today. We'd be here for hours. We're going to come to that. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to send them out, endowed with his authority, so that if someone will believe their message, it's as if they're believing Jesus. But if someone will reject their message that they're endowed with, it's as if you're rejecting Jesus himself. That's the authority that the apostles have. And it's the authority that gives us the very scriptures of God. How do we know that the scriptures are not morphing and changing? Because the apostolic authority has once and for all been handed down to the saints. That's the good news that we're going to be focusing on here today. So with that, let me come to some applications from this text. What I'm going to do is take this list of the 12 and really kind of do a topical message about the significance of the apostles. Number one, we must know that Jesus' apostles were his uniquely called spokesmen. They uniquely were the ones who grounded the authority of the scriptures. And we need to know that today. Why? Because there are so many today that they really relegate the Bible to having no more power or authority than that of the Reader's Digest. We have to react against that. We have to say, no, these apostles were indeed the very authorities and spokesmen for Christ. Number two, we should understand that the apostles are the foundation of the church and gave us Christ's very word. And one thing I'm going to show you is I'm going to show you the relationship between the New Testament apostles and the prophets. Once the apostles are off the scene of history, so are the prophets, and we don't get, therefore, new revelation. We have a revelation that has been handed down once and for all. Number three, we must know that no person today can meet the fourfold criteria of Christ's apostles. I'll be laying that out once again to show you that no modern person today, whether it's the Pope, whether it's the apostles that come from the Mormon church, or whether it's some other false religion, uh, false prophet like Muhammad, no one can claim to be a spokesman for God after the first century. Why? Because the apostles uniquely met four criteria that no person can meet today. Okay, that grounds our scriptures, and therefore we know that we have the word of God once and for all handed down to the saints, as it says in Jude 3. So what I want to do today is I want to begin laying out for you how this concept of the apostle bearing the authority of the one who sent him came into being beginning in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament times, you had in the ancient Near East a concept in which a dignitary like a king would send out a person who was sent with their message. And the idea is that if you rejected the messenger or mistreated the messenger, it was akin to mistreating or rejecting the king himself. You know, I think a good modern-day example of that would be how the nations today in our world use ambassadors. Think about if someone is going to abuse a nation's ambassador, you're really attacking not just the ambassador, but the nation that sent them. Now, in America, that may ring a little hollow. In 2012, one of our ambassadors, Christopher Stevens, was murdered, and our nation didn't seem to care much. But it's a big deal. It was a really big deal in the ancient Near East. And one of the stories I want to show you to illustrate this is through King David. Remember King David. Let me tell you a little bit about his life just to review. King David, remember, was anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. He was anointed as the Lord's chosen one who's going to be the future king. But he really reaches great notoriety when he kills Goliath. And after he kills Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, many of the people would go out and they rejoice. Remember, they would say Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And so he had great notoriety. Why does that matter? What I'm going to show you is a text from 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25, what's happening is David is on the run from Saul. Saul is jealous of David. He wants him dead. And as David is on the run, he is taking a bunch of military men with him. I don't know the number. There had been a fair amount of them. But they were on the run around a place called Mount Carmel. And around Mount Carmel, there was a man named Nabal. Does everyone remember that Nabal's name means what? It means fool. Nabal had a large shearing operation. Well, David, as he was on the run from Saul, he wants some sustenance from Nabal. 
And why should Nabal give it to him? Well, first of all, because David is the anointed one of Israel. And Nabal would have known that. Why? Because he knew his exploits with Goliath. Everyone did. Second, David had been protecting his sheep-shearing operation and did nothing mischievous with any of the sheep or any of his men. In other words, he had treated them well. He had protected them. But number three, we know from the scriptures that Nabal was a Calebite. And according to 1 Chronicles chapter 2, that family was the one that founded Bethlehem. Why is that important? Because what that means is Nabal the fool and David were kinsmen. And therefore, if a kinsman had trouble, another kinsman had the responsibility to help them. Nabal threw all that aside. And so what happens, as I'm going to show you, is David sent men. And the sent one is known as the Shiluak. The one who is sent as the authority of the one who sent him. What does Nabal the fool do? He mistreats the one who was sent by the king David, by the king. And therefore, he's really mistreating the king himself. And that's where we pick it up here in 1 Samuel 25, verse 14 and verse 25. So let me read verse 14 first. Notice it says, and by the way, when we pick it up here in the narrative, David's men had already gone out to speak to Nabal. Nabal treated them poorly. He rejected them. So now one of the young men who probably belonged to Nabal is warning Abigail about what happened. Remember, Abigail was the wife of Nabal. It says, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Now notice, who is David? Again, he is the anointed one of Israel, 1 Samuel 16, and he's being scorned by the fool Nabal. He's being scorned because Nabal's mistreating the sent one, the one who is shellac, the one who is sent in the name of the king. Okay, now, notice in verse 25, what is going to be the reaction of Abigail? Abigail is aghast. She doesn't want this type of thing to happen because she knows that David will wipe out her husband in the whole shearing operation. In fact, if you read the account, David is very hot under the collar. And yes, David was a righteous man, but he was nothing to be trifled with. And there was a righteous anger that he had when his messengers were mistreated. Now, it would not be right if he would have taken Nabal's life. And Abigail's intercession prevents Nabal from being murdered and David from being a murderer. And so here we see the intercession. This is Abigail to David. She says, Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. The implication there is Abigail saying, if you had sent them and I saw them, they wouldn't have been mistreated. So she intercedes, David relents, and remember Nabal ends up dying of natural causes. Abigail becomes David's wife. That's what happens in the story. But the big picture I want you to see here is that if you mistreat the messengers, the one whom David sent, it's akin to mistreating David himself. That's the concept in the Old Testament called the shaluak. That's the participle. The verb is shellac. If you shellac someone, you're sending them. The participle, the one who is sent, is shaluak. And the concept you need to know is that in the Old Testament, this concept of the one who is sent having the authority of the one who sent him fast forwards to the New Testament and is filled out in the apostolos, the apostle. So that when the apostle is sent out, They have the very authority of the one who sends them. That's the concept that I want you to understand how the Old and the New Testament come together. Okay? And by the way, if you have the theological dictionary of the New Testament, they do a bang-up job of explaining all this as well. Now, what I want to do is come to the New Testament, and I want you to think about all of a sudden Jesus the Messiah, the Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene, and he is the original sent one into the world, the original apostolos par excellence, because he speaks for God the Father, because he is God the Son. And so if you reject Jesus, the original apostle, you're going to be rejecting the Father. We see this concept in Hebrews 3.1, where it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
Does everyone see the term apostle there in blue? That's the term apostolos. And again, the implication is that as Jesus the Son comes into the world, he bears the very authority of the one who sent him. That's the idea. Now, think of this conceptually. Think of Jesus as the sheriff. Well, now we saw today in Matthew chapter 10, he has deputies. He has the 12 that are deputized as his apostles. And so the logic is if you reject the apostles Jesus sends, you're rejecting Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting the one who sent him, namely the heavenly father. That's the idea. And that's why Jesus will say, for example, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You come to Jesus, the original sent one, the original apostle, you're coming to the Father. And we see as much also in John chapter 6. Remember here, you had Jews that were asking Jesus, what must we do that we would also do the works of God? Well, Jesus answers in John 6, 29, says he said to them this is the work of God that you believe in him that's Jesus whom he that's the father has sent what must every single person do every single person must believe in the sent one from the father if you reject the one that the father has sent into the world you're rejecting the father himself every single person must do that absolutely critical to salvation it comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. All right, now, what I'm going to show you then is the importance of Jesus' apostles. Again, they are his deputies. And so in Matthew chapter 10, we see Jesus, the original sent one, gives his authority to his deputies, the 12. And so later, for example, in Matthew 10:40, Jesus will be speaking to his apostles, and he says, he who receives you, that's the apostles, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. All right, now, notice the term receives. That's the term decamai. Bob has done really good work in our Sunday school classes talking about the importance of decamai. It means to warmly receive, to warmly welcome. And the idea is that if you warmly welcome the doctrines of the apostles, you're warmly welcoming to yourself the very doctrines of Christ. And if you do that, you're also receiving the one who sent Jesus, namely the Father. But of course, the opposite would be true. If you reject the doctrines of the apostles, you're rejecting the doctrines of Christ. In fact, Jesus says as much in Luke 10, 16. Notice here he says to his apostles again, the one who listens to you, that's the apostles, listens to me. Now let's stop there for just a moment. The term listens there comes from akuo. And you can hear the root there for acoustics. That's where we get our term for sound. But here, the idea of listening is not just hearing sounds going through the eardrum, but it's the idea of hearing with faith. Think about Deuteronomy 6.4. Remember the famous Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The idea of hearing means hearing with faith. The same thing is present in this text. The one who listens with faith to you, the apostles, that is your message, is listening with faith to me. That's the implication. But notice in red, he says, and the one who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. The term reject there, by the way, is atheteo, and it literally means to declare invalid. So Jesus is telling his apostles, if anyone declares your message to be invalid, they're declaring me to be invalid. And of course, they'd be declaring then the Holy One of Israel, the Father, to be invalid as well. That's the idea of the authority of the apostles. All right, now, why is this so important? Dear ones, the majority of your Christian life, you're going to be around people who afford, again, as I said earlier, they afford the Bible no greater authority than the Reader's Digest. But I want you to see that because we have the apostolic word, those who say, why do you have such an authority? Why do you believe in an authority in the scriptures? Well, those who reject the authority of the scriptures, the authority of the apostles, they're disagreeing with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I say that because think about the movement many of you in here have heard of red-letter Christians. How many in here have heard of that movement? Red-letter Christians started by a man named Tony Campolo. Now, I want to say this gently, but I believe Tony Campolo has far more in common with Karl Marx than he does with Jesus Christ. 
And the, one of the ways he gets away with having false doctrine is he jettisoned the apostles. Let me read to you. This is just a title of one of the articles he had on his website this Thanksgiving. He said this, quote, decolonizing Thanksgiving, unquote. How do you think that has, what do you think that has to do with the Bible? Decolonizing Thanksgiving. It sounds like a Marxist professor from Berkeley. Or how about this one? There's a message he wrote that it was against the death penalty. Now, why would the red-letter Christians have to get rid of the apostles like the Apostle Paul in order to hold on to their Marxist doctrine? Well, let me give you one example. In the Bible, the Bible clearly teaches a doctrine for the government known as capital punishment. We see it first in Genesis 9-6 where the Lord says, and by the way, this is to be universal, the establishment of government. Genesis 9-6, he says, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man so by man shall his blood be shed. And what that is, it's the institution of human government. The role of human government is to restrain evil. But the Marxists don't like that. They want the goal of government to be something about redistribution of wealth. So the goal of government is jettisoned. You can't restrain evil by putting murderers to death. We want to be those who just redistribute wealth. Now remember, the Apostle Paul validates Genesis 9-6 by saying in Romans 13-4 that the government does not bear the sword in vain. When Paul says that, what does that mean? It means the government can use the sword. Well, Tony Campolo doesn't like that. So you get rid of the apostle, call yourself a red-letter Christian, and say you're just getting back to the fundamentals of Jesus Christ, and you're morally free in your mind. That's what the red-letter Christians do. By the way, I did this a little tongue-in-cheek. Notice these red letters. The one who rejects you, the apostles, rejects me. Red letter. How do we have the very words of Christ? Well, it's interesting. We have them from the apostles. So do you see the red-letter Christian movement is shooting itself in the foot? And what's more, they don't like the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back to rapture the church, to rescue us, as it says, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, from the wrath to come. Why? Because they want you to be consumed with living on earth to take care of it, creation. They'll call it creation care. Really what it is, it's radical environmentalism. That's all part of the red-letter Christians. Why? Because they rejected the apostles. And those who reject the apostles, they end up worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. That we can be sure. Dear ones, the apostles and their doctrines must not be rejected. Now, what I'm going to show you is a fundamental passage that every Christian should have in the back pocket, as it were, when they're dealing with people who believe in modern-day apostles. And that's what we find in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. Notice here what Paul says, very important metaphor, the building of the foundation of the church here. Notice it says, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, Paul says, so then... You, that is believers, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, initially, when I got into this, I wanted to get into some grammar, but I think you're all going to yawn, so I'm not going to do that. Let's make this really simple. All of us can use this passage to refute people who believe in modern-day apostles. Notice the metaphor that Jesus is using, or excuse me, Paul is. He's talking about the church, that's the household of God. It's having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's obviously using a building metaphor. And how many in here know that when you build a building, you only have one foundation? You don't have a foundation, a little bit of building, another foundation, a little bit of building, and another foundation. You only have one. And so the one foundation that has been laid consists of the apostles and prophets. And notice it's Christ Jesus himself, which is the cornerstone of the foundation. In other words, it's Christ who holds that one foundation together. My point in showing you this metaphor is, isn't it absurd to claim that you would have multiple apostles like modern-day apostles in the New Apostolic Reformation movement today? Or from the Pope? who declares himself the very vicar of Christ, who when he speaks ex-cathedra from the seat is speaking as an apostle, 
Or how about the Mormon apostles who have a different Jesus? A Jesus who's the spirit brother to Lucifer, a far different Jesus than the creator of all things. So what you have to show them is that, no, you're not entitled to have modern-day apostles because there's one foundation that's been laid. And if you only have one foundation, you don't have multiple, well, then you only have one set of apostles and prophets, and you're not going to have multiple Christ. You don't have multiple Christ, do you? Well, of course not. You only have one. Now, one question that I've been asked over the years is people ask me, Eric, what about these prophets here? Is that a reference to the Old Testament prophets? No. It's actually a re referring to the New Testament prophets. Now, normally, Greek word order doesn't matter that much, but here I think it does. Because had Paul intended to talk about Old Testament prophets, he probably would have thrown that forward and talked about the foundation of the prophets and apostles, but he does not. He's talking about New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. And proof of that is if, if you're a note-taker, please jot down Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. Remember, that's where in Ephesians, Paul says that Christ ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. The gifts to men that he gave is listed in Ephesians 4, 11, where it says that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Notice the list begins with apostles and prophets. Not prophets and apostles, but apostles and prophets. They are New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. Why is that important? Because what it shows us is a relationship in the foundation that once you no longer have apostles, they die off after the first century, you no longer have any prophets either. So what I want to do is on the next slide, I want to show you what I see biblically is the relationship between the apostles and prophets. First of all, let's define what a New, Pro New Testament prophet did. A New Testament prophet gives the church revelation. And it's revelation that was either spoken or it was written, and it was for the edification and the encouragement and the protection of the church. So let's use uh, Peter first as an example. The Apostle Peter, of course, wrote First and Second Peter, but he never wrote a gospel. However, he stands as the eyewitness source more than likely behind Mark's gospel. So here's what I want you to think of conceptually. The Apostle Peter is really the source to Mark's gospel. Mark would be a prophet underneath apostolic authority. That's the relationship. Was Mark an apostle? Did anyone see his name listed in the 12? No. So how could he write scripture? Well, he was under apostolic authority. It was really the apostle Peter's eyewitness recollections that formed Mark's gospel. That's the relationship, I think, between the apostles and prophets. Think about the apostle Paul. He wrote 13 of our 27 New Testament books. 13 of them, that's a lot, but he never wrote a gospel, yet more than likely he stood behind Luke's gospel. So Luke, again, is not in the list of the 12 that we read about today, but yet he would be considered a prophet under apostolic authority. And we know from the scriptures that indeed Luke was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. So what I'm claiming is that one of the relationships we should see between the apostles and prophets is this relationship here. Luke was not an apostle, Mark was not an, an apostle, but they were prophets who wrote us the very revelation of God under apostolic authority. All right, now let me show you other prophets that spoke, they didn't write, but they spoke. And one example would be, for example, Agabus. Agabus in Acts 11, 27 through 28. Notice what it says. It says, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem. Now, stop there. Notice the coming down. That doesn't mean they're going south. That's how we think as Minnesotans. But it meant they came down in elevation. Jerusalem was higher. So the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. So notice the claim is that Agabus spoke by the Spirit and he predicted that there would be this great famine over the world. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened, according to Luke, who wrote this during the reign of Claudius. That would be between 41 AD 
in 54 AD. There was a series of great crop failures in the Mediterranean world. Now, why would that be important for the edification, the encouragement, and the protection of the church to have a prophet named Agabus who would say this? Remember, at this time, they're taking a collection for relief for the church in Jerusalem. So they needed to know what the issues were. And you have a prophet named Agabus who was telling them exactly what was going to occur. And so whether it's a prophet like Agabus or whether it's a prophet like Mark and Luke who wrote God's revelation, you have all of the prophets under apostolic authority. That's conceptually how we should understand Ephesians 2.20. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Once the apostles are gone, after the first century, you no longer have any prophets. So if someone were to come to you and say, wait a minute, our Pope speaks authoritatively for God, and he's going to tell you how to define the scriptures. Do you know at the Council of Trent, they anathematize anyone who believes that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone? How did they get away with that? Well, because their apostle, their pope, and their magisterium is authoritative. When you get the understanding of the apostles and prophets as a laid foundation never to come up again, all of a sudden now you can fight against Roman Catholicism. If you don't understand this, Roman Catholicism remains a valid option. So it is Mormonism. We can fight them, I guess, on who the true Christ is. But I think we should fight them over who the apostles were as well. Okay, that's why I think this is so important. Now, what I'm going to show you today is that no matter who it is, I don't care if it's a person from the New Apostolic Reformation Movement or the Roman Catholic Pope, no one can claim to be a modern-day apostle. Why? Because they can't meet the four criteria I'm going to be showing you. I've showed this many times, but it's good to review. Number one, the original apostles were objectively and personally called. Now, I don't have time to turn there, but if you're a note-taker, jot down Matthew 4, verses 21 through 22, because there you see Jesus calling personally the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And literally, in Matthew 24, 21, it says, and he called them. Did, did that mean that he picked up his cell phone and he called them? No. Did it mean that they had a vision all of a sudden? They said, you know what, I think we should become apostles. No. Jesus personally and objectively intervened in their lives and said, you're going to follow me. So the calling of the apostles was not that the apostles sat around as disillusioned fishermen around the Sea of Galilee eating their Cheerios one morning saying, you know, this fisherman business isn't working out. Let's become apostles. You see, I think that that's how some modern-day apostles come about. They have some inner unction, some inner desire. Well, that's not what the original apostles had. They were objectively and personally called. Everyone after the first century who claims to be an apostle, you'd have to say they were subjectively called. It would be subjective only by their inner unction. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute, Eric. What about the apostle Paul? Oh, yes, he was personally and objectively called as well. Didn't the Lord Jesus appear to him in his resurrected state in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus? Oh, absolutely, he did. And in Galatians 1, didn't the Lord Jesus himself personally instruct the apostle Paul in Arabia for three years? Oh, yes, he did. So you see, Paul was brought up to that same standard, objectively and personally called. No one can claim that today. Who could claim that? What, what's the, the Pope today? Benedict? Can Benedict claim that today? What about one of the New Apostolic Reformation apostles? Can they claim that they were objectively, personally called by Jesus? No. Number two, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection according to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 through 8. Now, remember, when Jesus appeared bodily... There were, according to, Revel, excuse me, according to 1 Corinthians 15, he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. So here's the point. Just because you are an eyewitness of the resurrection did not mean you were also an apostle, but you could not be an apostle without being an eyewitness to the resurrection. That's how we should understand that. Okay, so can anyone claim to have seen the resurrected Christ today? No. 
What about the Apostle Paul? Well, he did. He saw the Lord Jesus, Acts chapter 9, and later was personally instructed by him. In fact, Paul says that he was one who was untimely born. Number three, they did miraculous deeds. That's what we saw today in Matthew chapter 10, that Jesus gave them the authority to heal how many kinds of diseases? Every kind of disease. How many kinds of sicknesses? Well, every kind. Well, that's miraculous. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews said. If you're a note-taker, jot down Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. I'll just cite from verse 4. Actually, the end of verse 3, it says that the message of the Lord was confirmed by those who heard. That's the apostles. It says in verse 4 of Hebrews 2, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Why did the apostles do miraculous deeds? To authenticate that they were indeed Christ's spokesmen. In my opinion, the charismatic movement, people in the Word of Faith movement who are always trying to conjure up people who are doing miracles are really shooting evangelicalism in the foot. Why? Because if you have modern-day apostles, then you don't have a scripture that's grounded once and for all. It's morphing. Why? Because other people can speak for God. Dear ones, the truth of it is no one does miraculous deeds like the apostles did in the first century. Anyone who claims to is a $3 bill. The fourth criteria is one that is somewhat unique to Bob and I, but I think it's biblical. That is, the fourth criteria is that you had to be taught by Christ. And what I mean by this is, remember, Jesus Christ personally instructed his 12, minus Judas, for how long? For three years. That's how long his earthly ministry was. Well, according to the Apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 1, that was necessary to replace Judas. That is, you had to be someone with Christ from the beginning of his ministry to the end of it. Listen to what Peter said. He said, therefore, it is necessary. By the way, the term necessary here probably means the divine necessity. It is the divine necessity that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Let me keep reading. I couldn't fit it all on the screen. By the way, in heaven, PowerPoint will fit all of the scriptures. It'll be a glorious time. But verse 22, it says, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Notice the criteria that Peter had, that it was necessary that the person who replaced Judas would be with Christ from the beginning of his ministry, the baptism, to the end of it, his ascension. How long was that? It was three years. Now, the question is, how could Paul fulfill this one? Well, again, if you read Galatians 1.18, remember Paul says that he did not go up to Jerusalem and did not consult the other apostles, but he was instructed by Christ in Arabia for how long? For three years. He was brought to the same standard. Dear ones, can anyone claim today, whether they're Mormon, whether they're Catholic, whether they're some type of other faith, can they claim to be objectively, personally called by Jesus, an eyewitness to his resurrection, did the miraculous deeds that Christ did, and were personally instructed by Christ? No. No one can claim that after the first century. What does that mean? There are more there are no more modern-day apostles. The apostles and prophets went off the scene of history in the first century. And why is that such good news for us? It's good news because it means that you and I have a scripture that is grounded. In the ever-changing world that you and I live in, boy, if you, if you said to me seven years ago, some of the lunacy that we see today, I would say, well, you're, you're crazy. That's how fast things are changing. Isn't it wonderful knowing as you look out the window or look at the news and you see how fast the world is changing, the word of God doesn't. Why? Because we have it once and for all handed down to the, state, the saints because of our apostolic foundation. And that's why Jude could say in Jude 3, he said, Beloved, again, he's speaking to the church. While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Dear ones, if we had modern-day apostles, modern-day prophets, Jude could not have said this. It would not have been once and for all handed down. By the way, the term there is hapax. Hapax means once and never again. Once and never again. That's the kind of faith we have. It's grounded 
in the scriptures. And the scriptures are never going to be morphing or changing. Why? Because we no longer have any apostles and prophets to change them. That's the good news. The next time we see the Lord Jesus, he's breaking through the clouds bodily to come for us. And it's after that point we will listen to anything new he may have. But up until then, it's scripture alone. That's why we go to Revelation 22:18. Let me read you the words of John again. The apostle who lived longest, he gave this message on Patmos as he was banished by Domitian around 95 AD. It says this, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Now, as I read this to you, some perhaps are thinking, well, wait a minute, Eric. That's an admonition just about not writing different or more words into the book of Revelation. In other words, it's only about adding words to Revelation. It's not about the entire Bible. Well, what I would say is that because this is the last book of the canon, it serves as a very powerful capstone that no, no one can add to the end of the canon. Therefore, no one can add to the scriptures. This is the last book written in the canon. By the way, when I say canon, I'm not talking about artillery. Canon comes from a term means standard. It's actually a read. So the, the canon, when I'm talking about the canon of scripture, we're talking about the standard, the, the 66 books that are from the Holy Spirit, given to us by the various men, whether they be prophets or apostles. That is forever grounded because no one can add to it. Dear ones, the Mormons add to it. The Roman Catholics add to it. The Muslims added to it 600 years after the death, burial, and resurrection. And so many add to it today. But dear ones, you and I know today from Matthew 10, 1 through 4, that it was the 12 apostles alone who were given the very authority of Christ. Let's rejoice in that. Let's rejoice that the word of God is forever grounded because Christ gave us apostles and prophets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that we have a scripture that's not morphing or changing in this crazy and changing world. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've shown us who you are, who we are as sinners, what is required of us, that through faith alone and Christ alone we may have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And I do pray here for my brothers and sisters that you would enable them to persevere. Lord, keep us from the sins that so easily entangle us so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.